You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Emer O'Loughlin. Just after 4pm on Friday the 8th of April 2005, Johnny O'Loughlin was finishing up his working day, drawing precast flooring from a quarry just outside Ennis, when he received a worrying phone call. On the other end of the line was Shane Bowe, the long-term boyfriend of his 23-year-old daughter, Emer, and he was frantic. Shane told Johnny that he had gotten a call at work to say that there was a fire at the remote site where himself and Emer had been living, and when he raced home to see what was going on, he found the mobile home neighbouring theirs to be completely ablaze. Although Shane was initially relieved to see that their own mobile home was intact and safe, he was growing increasingly anxious as Emer was nowhere to be found, despite the fact that her car and keys were there on site. Johnny clocked off from work and jumped into his van to make the 30-minute drive to the North Clare townland of Ballyborna, where Emer lived. The area, which runs along the border between Counties Clare and Galway, sits just off the New Line Road that cuts through the eastern corner of the Burren, surrounded by a rugged and wild, stony landscape. Emer and Shane had been living at the isolated spot since they returned from a round-the-world trip a few years before, choosing to stay in the mobile home on site while they saved to build their own house. As Johnny drove, he received another call from Shane to say that human remains had been found in the burning mobile home, but he didn't think it could be Emer as the body was too small. Johnny, however, feared the worst. He arrived at the site to find a chaotic scene. The mobile home neighbouring Emer's was completely destroyed, and what Johnny saw at Emer and Shane's mobile home at the other end of the field did nothing to put his mind at ease. Emer's car sat where it normally would, her beloved camera, which she would have taken had she gone anywhere on foot, was still in the caravan, along with her keys and purse. However, the most telling sign that something was wrong for Johnny was that Emer's two beloved dogs were running around the yard in front of the mobile home. His daughter was very diligent with her pets and would make sure to either bring them with her or secure them inside the mobile home if she were leaving to go anywhere. Speaking to Shane, Johnny learned that he had last seen Emer as he left for his job as a carpenter that morning. Emer, who was a talented artist, was enrolled in an art portfolio preparation course at Galway Mayo Institute of Technology and would have been due in college that day except the institute was closed as a mark of respect for Pope John Paul II, whose funeral was taking place. The couple had been having repeated problems with the electricity supply to their mobile home and the power had gone yet again that morning. Shane said that Emer's phone was dead, so he suggested that she go to the mobile home of their neighbour, John Griffin, and charge it there. Shane then left for work and hadn't seen or spoken to Emer since. He had received the call about the fire, and by the time he got back to the site just before 4pm, he said the blaze was at an advanced stage, so he rang Gardee, who dispatched Sergeant Patrick Fahey from Kinvara Station. 
As he waited for the guard at the site, Shane saw what he thought was a body in the debris, which he pointed out to the sergeant on arrival, and a doctor was called, who confirmed the presence of human remains. Despite Shane's initial assumption that the body found in the burnt-out dwelling was too small to be Emer's, Johnny O'Loughlin had a gut feeling that something was very wrong, and as the minutes ticked by with no sign of his daughter, the likelihood grew that she had come to some harm. He later said, quote, It didn't add up. I put two and two together. Besides Emer herself, the only thing missing from the couple's mobile home was her mobile phone, and Shane tried repeatedly to ring it over the next few hours without success. As Emer's two brothers arrived on scene to meet their father, Johnny, the trio began to search the vicinity for the missing young woman in the hope that she'd simply gone for a walk. Unfortunately, their searches turned up nothing, and as late evening set in with no sign of her, they were forced to face the dawning realisation that the remains found in the shelled-out mobile home were likely to belong to their beloved Emer. Her brother Raymond would later recall that as they looked around, it didn't feel right, and that, quote, everything was out of character there. Also absent from the area was the owner of the burnt-out mobile home, 36-year-old John Griffin. Griffin was originally from the Murview area of Galway, and he had a dark past that included a history of violence against women and a series of convictions for assault. He was known locally as a troublemaker, and it was reported that when he walked into a pub, people would walk out. According to Ivan Murphy, writing for the Evening Herald, Griffin was also known to Gardee for dealing drugs in Galway City. Investigators set about tracking him down to rule out the possibility that the body could be his. That night, officers traced him to a property in Galway, and Griffin told them that he had not been in Ballyborna since the day before. He claimed he had stayed overnight with a relative in the city, which was a 30-minute drive from the remote site in County Clare. The following day, the remains that had been discovered in the smouldering embers of the mobile home were removed to University Hospital Galway for examination. The body was badly burned, making visual identification impossible, so a DNA sample was taken from Johnny in a bid to ascertain for certain whether or not this was his daughter. However, by this stage, the O'Loughlin family had accepted that the body was Emer's, and she was named locally as the victim of the Inferno. In the aftermath of the fire, Emer's brother John volunteered to break the news that Emer was missing to their mother, who lived in Dublin, and their sister Pam, who lived in the UK. Feeling that he couldn't give this news over the phone, he drove to Dublin to tell their mother in person before flying to Heathrow to inform Pam. The post-mortem examination was performed by Deputy State Pathologist Dr Michael Curtis. Emer's family had hoped that the results would shed some light into what had happened in the mobile home, but unfortunately, due to the damage caused to the body by the fire, Dr Curtis was unable to establish a cause of death. The only thing he could say for certain was that the remains were that of a young woman. An article written by Tara King in the Clare Champion reported that some evidence of a sexual assault was also ascertained. At this stage, Gardy were keeping an open mind as to the cause of the fire. The scene at Ballyborna had been preserved and a full technical examination commenced. While processing the burnt remains of the caravan, officers recovered a number of items from the debris, including a kukri knife, which is a traditional Nepalese weapon with a foot-long curved blade. Officers began to interview people in the area, hoping to find any witnesses that may have seen or heard anything on the day of the fire. 
They established that the blaze had likely started at around 12 noon, but as the area is so remote, it hadn't been noticed for some time, and by the time it was discovered, it was too late to call the fire service. The investigation was headed by Superintendent Tony O'Dowd, who spoke to the media at a press conference, saying that Gardaí were ruling nothing out at the time, and that all options had to be considered while the cause of death remained unknown. Superintendent Paul Mockler of Gortgarda Station appealed to anyone who had been in the area on the morning or afternoon of April 8th to come forward. The superintendent said, quote, It was during the time that the Pope's funeral was on the radio, so maybe that will jog people's memories. Anyone who saw any unusual activity should contact us immediately. We have got an impressive response from people so far, but maybe there are more people out there who have information. As Gardie continued their investigation into the blaze, another, more bizarre situation transpired. Three days after the fire at Ballyborna, the owner of the mobile home, John Griffin, travelled to Connemara. Once there, he took the ferry from Rossaville to Inishmore, the largest of the three Aran Islands. When he arrived, he proceeded on foot to Dunangus, a 3,000-year-old stone fort that sits on the edge of a 300-foot cliff. Griffin then barricaded himself into the fort, and local guardie were alerted when he began to scream erratically and throw rocks at people passing by. They attempted to negotiate unsuccessfully with Griffin, who was said to be in an agitated state and threatening to jump off the cliff. And eventually, Gardie in riot gear were flown over from the mainland to deal with the situation. The Aran Islands lifeboat was also called out amid fears that Griffin would try and jump from the cliff. A nine-hour standoff ensued before Griffin finally emerged and was taken to St. Bridget's Psychiatric Hospital in Ballinasloe. Although investigators refused to be drawn on whether there was a connection between the Dunangus siege and the caravan fire, Pat Flynn, writing for the Irish Independent, reported that Garda sources confirmed they were looking into the possibility that both incidents were linked. The day after the incident at Dunangus, DNA results came back, confirming that the body in the caravan was Emer's. Officers travelled to the home of Johnny O'Loughlin to deliver the devastating news to the waiting family. Emer O'Loughlin was the youngest of four siblings, born on February 24, 1982. Growing up in Ennis Tymon, her sister Pam described her as a happy child who loved animals, in particular dogs and horses. At the age of nine, her parents separated, and as a result, her mother Josephine moved to Dublin while Emer stayed in Ennis Tymon with her father. This meant the two developed a particularly close bond. Johnny recalled, quote, I reared her since she was nine. She went everywhere with me. She was like my shadow. Emer showed an artistic flair from a young age and was said to always be sketching, drawing and taking photographs. Throughout secondary school, she developed these talents further and was described by her former principal, Enda Burt, as being a natural leader who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. As Emer's school years came to an end, she was unsure what she wanted to do with her life, so she gave herself some time out to think about it. Her father, Johnny, recalled that she tried out a number of different jobs in the search for a career that felt right for her. It was during this time in her late teens that she started a relationship with her childhood sweetheart, Shane Bow, and the pair soon decided that it was the right time in their lives to go travelling together. The couple spent two years living in Holland where Emer worked in a tulip bulb factory before embarking on a three-month trip across Thailand. Emer and Shane returned from their travels ready to settle down. 
Shane's family owned a plot of land in Ballyborna, and himself and Emer decided to buy a mobile home and live on the site until they saved enough money to build a house of their own. Everything seemed to be falling into place for Emer, and her father recalled this happy time in her life, saying, quote, I remember the first day she got the mobile home. I put it in with the jeep to the site, and it was the happiest day of her life. The beauty of the surrounding wilderness inspired Emer, and she threw herself into her art wholeheartedly, embarking on a photography course at GMIT. Emer's brother Raymond recalled, quote, The mobile home was out in the sticks, as we'd call it. It was where she wanted to be, and the quality of work that she got out of being up there was amazing. She'd take off for her walks, do her sketches, and come back. It was just someplace she loved being. In September of 2004, Emer enrolled in a further art course in order to build up her portfolio. It was all part of her bigger plan to study at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, and her hard work was beginning to pay off as she had just gotten news that she'd been accepted on her chosen course. Emer was delighted and was already making accommodation plans to stay with her mother Josephine in anticipation of the course starting in September of 2005. Josephine said that all the conversations she would have with Emer would be about art, and explained that Emer was so innately artistic that she had effectively created her own environment. Sadly, Emer would never make it to NCAD. The positive identification of Emer's body changed the status of the investigation and Gardie announced that her death was now being treated as suspicious. Superintendent Mockler issued a new appeal for information saying that investigators were looking to speak with any taxi drivers who may have brought a fare from Galway City to the Ballyborna area on the morning of the fire. He said, quote, Our appeal is to taxi or hackney drivers that if they delivered a fare from Galway City last Friday morning to this area to contact us, we are specifically interested if it was a man who was brought here, but we need to know if anyone may have made such a run. Gardie said they were also interested in speaking to a man who was seen driving a red or orange car in the area around the time of the fire. The O'Loughlin family were becoming frustrated with the pace of the investigation. Given John Griffin's history of violence and the fact that Emer's body was found in his mobile home, they felt that Gardie should have been looking closer into the Galway man. Instead, the early days of the investigation were spent focusing on Shane Bowe. This angered Emer's father, who said, quote, Every time I saw Shane, he was in the back of a squad car. They never thought of Griffin. Shane had a watertight alibi, having been at work in the company of others all day until he'd received the call about the fire. Yet investigators forged on with their line of inquiry, ignoring the red flags that hung around Griffin. Johnny said that all they were worried about was if Shane had done it, or if Shane knew about it, when in fact, Shane had been in work. After spending five days in St. Bridget's psychiatric facility in Ballinasloe, John Griffin shaved off his distinctive dreadlocks and beard, drastically changing his appearance before signing himself out of the hospital. In the following days, he once again travelled to Rossaville and bought a ferry ticket to Inishmore this time using a false name. Despite the consternation he had caused at Dunangus less than a week earlier, he wasn't immediately recognised thanks to his altered appearance, and he managed to access the fort again without detection. An alarm was raised a number of hours later when Gardie were informed that the fort had once again been barricaded in a similar fashion. 
They went to Dunengus, but instead of finding John Griffin there, all they saw was a pile of neatly folded clothes sitting on the cliff's edge. The scene had all the hallmarks of a suicide, so the initial thought was that Griffin had jumped from the cliff. A major search was initiated using lifeboats, a helicopter, and divers from the Garda Subaqua team. However, despite a full-scale search across the sea, air, and land, no body was recovered. Interestingly, Griffin was never reported missing by his family, despite the fact that he had a number of relatives living on Inishmore, and the clothing found at the cliff edge was never claimed from Gardee. This eventually led investigators to believe that the whole incident was an elaborate ruse, engineered by Griffin to make officers think that he was dead so that he would have a chance to flee the country without detection. There was no evidence of him travelling back to the mainland on the ferry, leading to some speculation that he may have had assistance leaving the island and could have escaped on a small private boat. Despite now having Griffin in their line of sight, investigators remained tight-lipped to the public, refusing to comment on speculation that they had a suspect in the case. Frustratingly for the O'Loughlin family, Gurdie refused to name Griffin in the media or publish any pictures of him. Instead, they opted to simply appeal for the, quote, man whose clothes were found on Inishmore shore to help them with their inquiries. This unwillingness to identify Griffin hindered any chance of the public recognising him, giving him a massive head start and causing huge dismay to Emer's loved ones. Two weeks after Emer's death, her family collected her body from the morgue in Galway and brought her to Johnny O'Loughlin's home in Ennis Tymon to be waked. Their grief was compounded by the fact that the damage caused to her body by the fire meant that they couldn't have an open coffin, robbing them of the chance to see her one last time. In a daze of grief, Emer's mother Josephine found this particularly hard to fathom. In a later interview, Josephine said, quote, It was Pamela that told me the coffin wouldn't be open. I said, why not? Why can't I see her? It was a massive funeral, and I was there physically but not mentally. Even though she was 23, to me she was always a child. She was my baby. The following day, at Our Lady and St. Michael's Church in Ennis Tymon, Hundreds of mourners turned out to pay their respects to the talented young artist whose life had been cut so tragically short. As Emer's coffin was carried from the church, her uncle Tony, an accomplished accordion player, played and sang Going Home by Dvorak in tribute to his niece. Johnny later said, quote, I was there, I was trying to hold in tears, and you know, I would have loved to have recorded the mass because I'd look at it every day. Six weeks after Emer's death, three people from Gort were arrested on suspicion of withholding information from Gardee. Although not considered suspects in the case, investigators felt that the middle-aged trio could potentially have information that would aid them in their inquiries. However, they were later released without charge and no new developments were made in the investigation as a result of the arrests. Gardee, in the meantime, continued to appeal for John Griffin to come forward, though they still declined to name him. In the aftermath of the three arrests, a file was sent to the DPP in relation to the main suspect in the case, but the DPP later advised Gardee that the crime scene was severely compromised, resulting in valuable evidence being lost. Gardee subsequently said that there may never be enough evidence to bring charges against Emer's killer, admitting that although they had a suspicion that the main suspect was somewhere in the UK, they had ultimately lost track of him. A Garda source also confirmed that even if he was located, 
it might prove impossible to extradite him. Little progress was made in the investigation in the following years, but Emer's legacy continued to live on. In 2006, to commemorate Emer, Shane Bow erected a large wooden cross bearing her name and the date of her death at the spot where she died. The following year, teachers at Ennis Tymon Vocational School, where Emer had been a student, set up an award in her honour, naming it the Emer O'Loughlin Award for Transition Year Student of the Year. In 2007, Pam O'Loughlin set up the Justice for Emer O'Loughlin Facebook page in an effort to keep her sister's memory alive. She explained, quote, It was to remember what she was like and how lovely she was, and just to give her friends somewhere where they could leave their memories of Emer, but also that any information regarding the case could be communicated. Pam was scathing of the Garda investigation, commenting, quote, Her killer is still out there, shielded and helped by his family and friends. Myself and my brother have decided to do our best to achieve via the internet what Interpol, the Gardaí and the Irish media have failed to do, and that's to track him down. The Gardaí have been unable to issue a photo or even a description of the suspect to the media as they both fear being sued. A description of Griffin was posted to the Facebook page and Pam was hopeful that despite being unable to name him, someone would recognise him. She said, quote, He may very well be on the run. He could be anywhere. He is listed with Interpol. In 2010, there was some movement when the Serious Crime Review Team undertook a review of Emer's case. By this time, the O'Loughlin family were desperate for answers, following years of exasperation at what they perceived to be inaction on the part of Gardi. They were particularly upset that Emer's murder was still being referred to as a, quote, suspicious death by investigating officers. Pam O'Loughlin took issue with this when speaking to the review team, and they told her that it was because the initial post-mortem had been inconclusive, and so they couldn't definitively say how Emer had died. Pam had said, quote, Well, bloody dig her up then. Dig her up and find out. The review resulted in a number of recommendations being made, including a suggestion to exhume Emer's body and conduct a second post-mortem. Pam consulted with the rest of the family and everyone agreed that although it was an extreme step, if it helped to get some more answers, it was the right thing to do. The review team consulted with forensic anthropologist Dr. Laureen Buckley, who specialised in examining skeletal remains and badly decomposed bodies. She started to work with the state pathologist to establish if an exhumation would be merited in Emer's case. Dr. Buckley thought that X-ray technology could be used on Emer's remains to glean more information on what might have caused her death, and based on her expert advice and opinion, an application was made to the coroner for County Clare to issue an exhumation order, which was subsequently granted. At 7am on May 19th, 2010, officers erected a white tent around Emer's grave, and her body was exhumed with Johnny and Raymond O'Loughlin supervising. Superintendent Sean Healy of Gort Garda Station oversaw the operation, saying, quote, Taking a decision of this nature requires the support of the family. It is an upsetting issue for families, and that is appreciated by Angarda Shiakona, and we approach this with all the sensitivity it requires. Superintendent Healy went on to thank the O'Loughlin family for their cooperation in the matter, saying that he understood that an exhumation means that people have to revisit their grief. Johnny O'Loughlin said that while it was a difficult experience, he just had to hold it together. 
The family wanted answers and justice for Emer. Referring to John Griffin, Johnny said, quote, He's still out there. It's only a matter of time before he is found by Gardi. I am confident of that because the Gardi I have been speaking to are confident. We miss Emer. She was the youngest daughter and was always happy and joyful, always smiling. The grieving father also said that Gardi had, quote, a lot of evidence they can't disclose to anyone in case it harms the case. Emer's remains were removed to Galway University Hospital, where a second post-mortem was carried out by Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Michael Curtis, along with Dr. Buckley. As part of this examination, forensic, pathological and anthropological tests were conducted, and images of Emer's bones were taken by X-ray. After studying these images, evidence of knife marks were found around the neck vertebrae. Based on these findings, the Gardaí upgraded Emer's case from that of a suspicious death to murder, confirming what her family had always believed. Officers were now confident that the young art student had been savagely attacked in John Griffin's mobile home before the unit was set ablaze. However, despite this huge breakthrough in the case, and the fact that Griffin was the main suspect, he was still not named or pictured in the media. In the aftermath of the upgraded investigation, senior officers joined forces with Emer's father to issue a fresh appeal for help in tracing her killer. Johnny said it was difficult not knowing how his daughter was killed. He asked, quote, Was she harmed? Was she tortured or beaten or anything like that? Did she suffer? That is what we grieve about. We hope she didn't suffer. The exhumation really proved that she was murdered, and we were hoping it'll bring closure. It was tough, but it's worth it. He recalled how Emer was always good to come home for a cup of tea and a chat, and would often stay the night at his house and would keep him updated on how she was getting on at college. He went on to say that the family believed that they knew the identity of her killer, but not why she was killed, and he urged anyone with information to come forward. Johnny said that there were definitely people out there who knew him. It was possible they may even be hiding him or helping him to hide. He asked those people to come forward and to give the information they had to Gardi. A senior officer in the investigation renewed their appeal for information and said that they were in particular trying to trace anyone who might have been in contact with Emer in the hours leading up to her death. Pam O'Loughlin said that it wasn't a huge surprise to learn that authorities now believed that Emer had died a violent death. Pam said that whatever had happened, Emer would have fought tooth and nail against her attacker. She would not have gone down without a fight. Two days after the exhumation, Emer's body was reinterred at Ennis Tymon Cemetery following a short prayer service that was attended by family members and close friends. Two months after Emer's exhumation, John Griffin was finally identified publicly as a suspect when Interpol released an international arrest warrant for him in connection with the murder. The agency issued an appeal for help across Europe and said that Griffin, also known as Fozzie, was known to have travelled from London to Germany in 2005, but that his current whereabouts were unknown and that he may be in the UK, Germany, Spain or the Netherlands. A wanted poster containing a photograph and description of Griffin was circulated by Interpol and shared widely across the media. In 2011, Crime Stoppers offered a reward for any information that would lead to tracking him down, and thousands of leaflets featuring his photo were distributed across Galway and Clare. 
The posters gave a description of Griffin, saying that he was now aged 44, 5 foot 11 inches tall, and of average build. It was also noted that Griffin had a distinctive neck tattoo that covered his Adam's apple, but unfortunately, the missive described this tattoo inaccurately, saying that it was a, quote, Celtic design. In reality, Griffin's tattoo featured an Egyptian symbol known as the Eye of Horus. Pam O'Loughlin believed that the inaccurate description could hugely hinder their efforts to locate Griffin. She said that although it might seem like a small detail, it could lead to the loss of an identification should someone familiar with the Egyptian symbol dismiss the tattoo as not being of Celtic design. Superintendent Pat Murray of Gort, who was now heading the investigation, appealed to people who knew where Griffin was currently located. Superintendent Murray said that they believed he was living in mainland Europe at the time, and was perhaps using an assumed name. He was known to have used the name John McDermott in the past. The superintendent noted that Gardie believed that Griffin had friends and acquaintances who knew his whereabouts. The superintendent said that the passage of time may now mean that certain individuals might be more willing to come forward with information. He said, quote, People may have changed their feelings about this. We can assure anyone who contacts us that we will treat their information in the strictest of confidence. To further boost this fresh appeal, Emer's case was featured on RTE's Crime Call TV series, but despite the renewed interest and cash reward, no new information was forthcoming. In 2013, Emer's story was featured on TV again, this time on an episode of RTE's Cracking Crime series, in the hopes that it would stir up some more public interest in the case. Detective Superintendent Christy Mangan of the Serious Crime Review team appeared in the episode and said that in the intervening years, a man matching Griffin's description was spotted in a number of European countries, including Germany. Gardie investigated the leads, but none of the sightings were ever substantiated. During the programme, Josephine O'Loughlin spoke at length about her daughter and how her murder had affected the family. She said she often thought about what Emer might have experienced on the day she died. Emer's grieving mother said, quote, It's not an easy thing, but then I say to myself, this is hard, but what did she go through? The only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that whoever did this will be caught. Emer's brother John also took part in the show, fondly recalling his sister's passion for art and photography, and in particular her love of daffodils, which she called sunshine in a bulb. He continued, quote, She always looked at things differently, like when it came to her art. When it comes to music and photographs, I like to look at things differently, and I think she taught me that. In 2014, the Irish Daily Mail published an article claiming that John Griffin had relocated to Scotland and that he was understood to have left a paper trail in Edinburgh. The article stated that Gardaí were liaising with Europol to try and establish his whereabouts. However, a year later, a second article reported that Scottish police ultimately found no trace of Griffin at two Scottish addresses that Gardaí had linked to him. A Garda source told the paper that the tip had turned out to be a dead end, and noted that the news was likely to come as a blow to the family and act as a setback for the investigation. Sadly, in 2015, Emer's mother Josephine passed away after a long illness without any closure. She'd continued to hold out hope that she would one day see justice serve for her daughter, but unfortunately it didn't happen. Following her death, the flurry of activity that had happened in the case in recent years died down, and once again everything went quiet. In 2016, 
In 2019, there was some fresh hope for the family when someone contacted Johnny O'Loughlin with what he believed was a credible tip that John Griffin was in Morocco. The information came from an Irishman who thought he had recognised Griffin. This man contacted Gardy in Ireland who took his details. According to Johnny O'Loughlin, officers sent the man pictures of Griffin to print and stick up around the area in Morocco. However, the man had not done this, as he believed the pictures would just drive Griffin further away. Ultimately, the family felt like Gardy did little with this information. In 2002, it emerged that a number of years before, John Griffin had been tracked to a rehab facility in Scotland. This tracing was the result of a coordinated effort between Gardy, Interpol and Scottish police. Unfortunately, Griffin had already left the facility by the time investigators became aware that he had been a patient. A Garda source told the media, quote, His identification in the rehab in Scotland occurred some time ago. It's terribly unfortunate that he was not identified while a patient there. By the time it was established, he'd been released. Griffin's confirmed presence in Scotland predated the sightings of him in Morocco, and it once again highlighted the failings in the investigation. In the years since the murder, the O'Loughlin family have been dogged in their pursuit of justice for Emer, with her sister Pam relentlessly searching and chasing down leads that could help to locate John Griffin. She has liaised with the media regularly in a bid to keep Emer's case fresh and in the minds of the public, while also managing the Justice for Emer Facebook page. Pam's own research has taken her down many rabbit holes, including a long and thorough investigation of hundreds of tattoo parlours worldwide to see if any of them had a record of performing a cover-up of an Adam's apple tattoo. However, the absence of any answers has taken a heavy toll on her, and in 2020, she took a step back from the search. Pam said, quote, Now I am deflated, beaten. It was years of my life just constantly trying to keep her memory going. Every day I would be on the internet. She explained that her decision to let go was tough but that she felt she needed to shift focus to other things in her life. However, she said it was not an easy decision to make, and one that's left her feeling afraid. Quote, I feel we're losing grasp, really, and we're getting older. My huge fear is that she's just going to fade, fade into the distance and be forgotten. Pam is hugely critical of how the Garda investigation into Emer's killing was handled. She said, quote, from the very beginning, there were huge problems with the Garda investigation, and it's not just the Gardee, but other professionals immediately involved in Emer's case did not use all the tools available to them. They could have found the cause of death sooner. Although she was relieved that the second post-mortem had finally established that Emer's death was as a result of violence, she said that the family still don't know exactly how her sister died. Quote, she was buried without a cause of death. We buried Emer in a daze of grief and then fought to have her body exhumed five years later, but we still don't know what was in the medical report after her body was re-examined. We have never been told. Pam told Ali Bracken of the Sunday Independent that she believed someone should be held accountable for the mistakes made in the investigation. In particular, she questioned how John Griffin was able to get away and why his photo wasn't circulated in the media for the first five years of the investigation. Pam called on Garda Commissioner Drew Harris to intervene in the case and order a full review. She wanted all the evidence looked at again and said that an independent inquiry was needed. Pam asserted that Emer had been failed and that the chief suspect had been given a five-year head start and was now nowhere to be found. 
She said that she knew her sister wasn't coming back, but that her memory deserves full transparency about every aspect of the initial investigation. Johnny O'Loughlin has also done his best to keep Emer's memory alive by giving regular updates in the media and appearing on the numerous TV shows that have featured Emer's case over the years. In a recent interview with the Clare Champion, he said that he personally felt the need to talk about the situation and that holding it in did him no good. He said he would talk to anyone who asked him about it and added, quote, I make no bones about it. You can't keep it in all the time. Like his daughter Pam, Johnny is highly critical of the investigation and how John Griffin was allowed to get away. Johnny asked, quote, If he didn't do it, then where is he? Why was he allowed to get away? The investigation by the guards let Emer down and they let us down. If they have any conscience, they would move heaven and earth for Emer now. Johnny has stated that he has his own suspicions about why Emer was attacked. In the lead-up to the murder, there had been ongoing issues with the electricity supply to Emer and Shane's mobile home, and, as a result, they would have to go to Griffin's mobile home to charge their phones. The couple had spent €400 Euros on trying to fix the problem to no avail, and in hindsight, Johnny wonders if the cables might have been subjected to repeated sabotage. His theory is that on the morning Emer went to Griffin's mobile home, she saw something she shouldn't have, and it resulted in her death. But, he noted, this was only his suspicion. He remains fairly certain that John Griffin is currently in Morocco, and he still hopes for a breakthrough in the case, though he knows it's unlikely at this stage. He told reporter Owen Ryan that they had hope, but that there's no extradition treaty with Morocco. So that hope is vague. John Griffin would now be 56 years old. He's described as being 5 foot 11 inches tall and has blue eyes and brown hair. He's been known to go by the nicknames Fozzie and has used the alias John McDermott in the past. He's also been known to give an alternate date of birth, placing his birth year as 1972. When last seen in Ireland, Griffin had a distinctive Egyptian symbol tattooed on his throat, depicting the Eye of Horus, although this may have been covered or removed in the intervening years. Griffin has known ties in the UK, Germany, Spain and the Netherlands, and the most recent reported sighting of him was in Morocco. Anyone with information regarding his whereabouts should contact Gort Garda Station or Interpol. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Patrons get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, nifty merch, and of course, my unending thanks and undying love. Special thanks this week goes to Shan Parry, Susie D, and Rebecca Duff Tracy please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, and additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spiran. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. In the strictest, in the strictest of conf- in the strictest.
in the strictest strictest 